0: Our sermon this morning is on Romans chapter 9, verses 22 to 33. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you have them. Uh, if you're using a Pew Bible, you can find Romans 9 on page 889. We've been in Romans chapter 9 for uh, a couple of weeks now, uh, looking at the idea of the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God to, to keep his word, the sovereignty of God over the salvation of his, his people. The big idea, the big idea with Romans 9, and really with all of Romans 9 through 11, we've said it each time, is that uh, Paul has made a number of just big, grand, sweeping promises uh, in Romans 1 through 8 thus, thus far, right? Uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we can be justified freely uh, by God's grace as a gift through the person and work of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, Salvation is not uh, of works. We're saved because we can trust in Christ and his righteousness is then credited. It's imputed to us. And so God can treat us as if we have lived the perfect life of Christ. That's kind of Romans 1 through 4. Romans 5, we have peace with God. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us new life. We're dead to sin. We're alive to God. Now we're kind of in through Romans 6 and 7. Romans 8, we have no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been adopted as a child of God. Uh, the suffering that we may experience uh, in this life is not worth comparing to the glory that we are going to experience uh, in eternity. Nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So so just tons and tons of big, weighty, priceless promises that we see in Romans 1 through 8. And so the catch is, the objection is going to come that uh, if Paul's gospel is true, right, that people are saved by trusting in Jesus and not because of their uh, Jewishness or not because of their uh, citizenship in the nation of Israel, if they're saved by trusting in Jesus, then that means that uh, what about all these other promises that God made in the Old Testament to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David, If Paul's gospel is true, does that mean that God doesn't keep his word? And so Romans 9 through 11 is Paul addressing that objection and saying, no, God does keep his word. When God promised the nation of Israel that he was going to save them and that they would be his chosen people and that he would never forsake them, never abandon them, all these promises that God made to Israel, God has kept them, is still keeping them, and will always keep those promises. But he clarifies, he says, you know, it's... Paul, uh, God never said, uh, never, never intended to uh, communicate that he was going to save every single last individual ethnically Jewish person. To interpret the promises in that way is to, is to misunderstand them. He was saying he was going to save the nation of Israel collectively as a whole, and specifically, uh, you know, the, several people within the nation of Israel, in fact, in various seasons, maybe the vast majority of those within the nation of Israel would reject God, reject the Messiah, and would not experience God's saving grace. But there would always be a thread. There would always be a remnant. God would never let the nation of Israel be without some remnant, no matter how small, some remnant of believers. And then eventually... Before Jesus returns, that remnant of believers is going to explode out in this massive revival in the, the last days where there's going to be a widespread accepting of Christ that's going to take place within ethnic Israel. And so God's promises will ultimately come full circle. So, so there will always be a remnant, but, the God, but, but God is going to al- allow some and even a. a Majority of Israelites to reject the Messiah so that the gospel can go out to the world so that the Gentiles like us can have an opportunity to hear it and respond to it and then ultimately come full circle uh, with this widespread uh, return to Jesus where the people of Israel are going to look on the one that they have pierced and, and you know, repent and trust in Christ and be reconciled to him. So that's kind of the story of 9 through 11. And so again, every passage uh, in, from from all three of these chapters, is going to hit on some of those themes in some, uh, in some way. So 9, 1 through 13, we looked at uh, God's promises have always been for some, but not all. There's always been uh, Isaacs and Ishmaels, Jacobs and Esau's, believers and unbelievers. In verses 14 to 23, last week he pulled on the thread a little bit more and said the reason why God allows some people to believe and others not to believe The reason why God has created a world where some people can trust in God and others don't is because uh, God is sovereign and he has determined that that's the best thing that there can be. Like the, the world that God's created is the best one. God wants everyone to be saved. Jesus dies for everyone so that everyone might be saved. And at the same time, God specifically, particularly wants his people to be saved. And he sees to it that they will trust in Christ and will be saved and he never ever loses them ever. You know, what we, we read and heard and considered in Romans uh, 9, 1 through 23. And so today, Paul's going to pick up on that same point, but kind of pivot a little bit and start to talk specifically about Jews and Gentiles and how God's sovereignty in his saving purposes relates to Jews and, and Gentiles. And so the two big, uh, big points that we're going to see in the text today, it's pretty easy to remember. One, uh, there will be Gentiles who are saved— and two, there will be Jewish people who are not saved. That's kind of uh, the, main, the, the main kind of two things that, that Paul is trying to articulate in the last ten or so verses of this, this chapter. There will be Gentiles who do trust in Jesus and receive the glorious salvation of God, even though they're Gentiles and not Jewish. And there will be Jewish people who reject Jesus and then experience the judgment of God, even though they are Jews and not Gentiles. Because salvation has nothing to do with ethnicity, or race, or nationality, or people group. It has everything to do with faith and with trusting in Jesus to save you from your sin. So that's, the, that's what we're going to look at. That's where we're headed today. So let's read through. Romans 9, verses 22, and we, we, are, we looked at 22 and 23 last week, but it's the first half of kind of a compound sentence, so we're going to uh, kind of get, get our, you know, get a running start, and then, and then j- we're going to jump in there and kind of really start it in verse 24. It says, "'What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath who were prepared for destruction?' in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Wrong page. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not my beloved I will call beloved. And there, in the very same place where it was said to them that you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. As Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask your blessing on our time in your word this morning. We pray that you would give us grace, that you would give us uh, ears to hear, eyes to see. We pray that you would illumine our hearts. We pray that you would give us grace to respond. Help us to listen to your word and to obey it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. Like I said, start with last week. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory uh, for his vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory? The big idea here is this is why God has chosen to, to create a world in which some people can be saved, vessels of mercy, and some people will not be saved, vessels of, of wrath. God chose to do that on purpose, it wasn't a mistake. And the reason he did it is so that the riches of his glory might be made known to the vessels of mercy. In other words, God allows some to be saved and others not to be saved for the sake of his own glory. God has determined that this world that we're living in right now, where some people receive his mercy and some people do not, is the world in which God receives the most amount of glory. God could have created another world that works a different way, where everyone is saved or where no one is saved. He didn't because he decided... He knows that those, he receives more glory in this world as it exists right now than he would in those hypothetical other worlds. And the people of God receive more joy and delight and, and happiness and gladness and satisfaction in God in this world than we would otherwise. This is the world in which God is maximally glorified and in which God's people will be maximally satisfied. And we, the people of God, will know and experience and see and savor and taste and treasure the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the, the, the glory of God better and more fully in eternity because of how God designed this world this way, as opposed to if he had designed the world in a different way, maybe one that we think would be better, but uh, would not result in God being glorified as much as he is and us being satisfied in him as much as we are. That's 22 and 23. But in verse 24, Paul kind of drills in and and kind of looks specifically at this group of the, the vessels of mercy that were prepared before him for glory. And he says, just to be clear, just to reiterate, just to remind you, when I say vessels of mercy prepared before him for glory, I'm not talking about exclusively a a group of ethnically Jewish people. I'm talking about this entity of of Jews, Uh, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So the people of God that God is working with and working in and saving to keep forever is not only Jewish people, it's also Gentiles, which was a scandalous claim to make in the first century because the prevailing thought was, we are all going to heaven because we're Jewish. None of them are going because they are Gentiles. There's nothing that any Jewish person could ever do that's so bad that it would cause God to not save us, and there's nothing that any Gentile could ever do anywhere in the world that would cause him to receive God's grace and love. We're too good, they're too bad. So 100% of us Jewish people are going to be saved, 0% of those Gentile people are going to be saved. And Paul says, wrong on both both counts. The dividing line is not Jewish people over here, Gentile people over here, these are saved, these are not. The dividing line rather is, uh, you know, Those who have faith in Christ over here, those who do not have faith in Christ over here, these are saved, these are not. And so uh, each group is going to have uh, some mix of both Jews and Gentiles in it. Which might prompt the reader to object. Well, Paul, where do you see that? that? That sounds perfectly well and good, but... But where's your evidence? Where's your data? Where is is some example from the Old Testament that you can show us to show that Gentiles are going to be saved by God and that Jews might not be saved by God? And Paul says, I'm happy to show you evidence from the Old Testament. Let's turn to the book of Hosea. He says, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. This is a quote from Hosea chapter two, verse 23. And Hosea chapter one, verse 10. Now, here's what's going on in the book of Isaiah. If you're not familiar, Hosea was a prophet of God and God came to him and said, I'm not making this up, You read it. Uh, I want you to get married, go find a wife. But you should know going in, she's not going to be faithful. She's going to cheat on you. And your wife cheating on you and your remaining faithful to her despite her infidelity is going to be uh, an illustration, an object lesson for how I am faithful to uh, my people, Israel, who are unfaithful to me. And so Hosea marries a woman named Gomer. And they have their first child and everything's going great. By all accounts, that first child appears to be Hosea's child. Then Gomer gets pregnant a second time, and Hosea maybe suspects that the child is not his biological child, because he names the second child no mercy, or she has not received mercy. She's, you know, presumably he's thinking, this is not my child, and she's not going to receive the mercy from me as a father that a biological child of mine would receive. So... Not great. Things aren't going great in, in their, their family just yet. And then, third, then uh, Hosea gets pregnant a third time. And this time Hosea is all but certain that the child is not his because he names this child, Not My People. Not My Child um, is the name of, of, uh, of Hosea's, or of Gomer's third child. And so so uh, Hosea and Gomer have a family, two out of their three children. Uh, Hosea suspects are probably someone else's children. And God says, just like Hosea's kids were not his The people of Israel are not my people. I am not their God. They have turned their back on me. They have rebelled against me. They have worshipped idols against me, and therefore they are not my people, and I am not their God. God makes that very clear in the first two chapters of Hosea, but in in chapter 1, verse 10, and in chapter 2, verse 23, God says, even though you are not my people, Because of your sin and idolatry and rebellion and how you've rejected me. Even though you're not my people, I am going to bring you back. I am going to call you my people. And and despite your best efforts, you actually are going to be my people, and I am going to be your God. That's Hosea. And it's talking primarily about the nation of Israel and how they forsook their special position as God's covenant people, but how God would eventually call them back and restore them. But here in Romans, Paul is picking up that same idea from Hosea, and he applies it to the Gentiles. He says, you know how God took Israel after they had walked away from him, and once they were no longer his people, and he brought them back and he made them his people all over again? Well, you know who else is not God's people? All of the other nations in the world, they—they all of the Gentiles, every single Gentile on the planet is not God's people as much or more so as the nation of Israel and Hosea was when they walked away from God and were called not God's people. All the Gentiles are not God's people. And so if Hosea 1 through 2 shows us anything, it shows us that God is able to take someone who is not his people, And gather them back to himself and restore them and bring them back into his presence and make them his people. And so God did that with Israel in the book of Hosea. And God is also doing that with Gentiles here and now when they turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. That's Paul's argument rooted in Hosea 1-2 through that God can take Gentiles who are not his people and incorporate them, graft them into the people of God and make them part of the body of people that he is saving. God's people, this body of elect individuals that God has called to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, will not be comprised exclusively of Jewish people. It will be comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, because God is going to take a whole bunch of Gentiles, who at the moment are not God's people, and he's going to gather them to himself and make them his people. At the moment, they're worshiping other gods made of wood and stone, They're worshiping the sun, they're worshiping the earth, they're worshiping food and pleasure and immorality. Gentiles all over the world are doing all kinds of things, everything except worshiping God, and God is going to bring them to himself, give them the gift of repentance and faith, save them and call them my people. And we know that he can because he did in Hosea 1-2. through That's the first point that Paul is making here in this text. There will be Gentiles... That God is calling to himself through the personal work of Jesus and they will receive God's salvation. That's point one is that there will be some Gentiles who are saved. And point two is the flip side looking at the nation of Israel. There will be some ethnically Jewish people from the nation of Israel who will not be saved. And he shows us that in verses 27 and following. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. That, so we're going to kind of look at the Old Testament quite a bit this morning, but that's from Isaiah chapter 10, verse 22. Now, the book of Isaiah uh, Big surprise, Uh, the the predominant theme of the book of Isaiah is rebuking the people of of Judah, Jerusalem, for their sin, right? Woe to you, why do you rebel? Like, though your sins are like scarlet, God is going to bring judgment against you, destroy everything that he has given you because you've sinned against him and offended his glory and his holiness. God is going to bring a foreign nation to overtake you. That's the recurring theme that we see all throughout the first 30, 40 chapters of Isaiah. Is is rebuking uh, the people of Israel for their for their sin, and one of the ways that that Isaiah describes that judgment that's coming against the people of Judah and Jerusalem is here in verse twenty two in chapter ten, verse twenty two, where he says, "Though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will will return, because destruction has been decreed by the Lord God of, of hosts." So Isaiah is saying. Yes, I get that we are God's people. I get that God has made covenant promises to our forefathers. I get that we have a special place in God's redemptive plan. I get all of that. But judgment is coming. Destruction is coming. And it's going to be so widespread, so pervasive, so cataclysmic that you won't even be able to recognize what's left after the judgment has come and gone. Before God's judgment, we're going to be this massive nation, Sons as many as the sand of the sea. But after God's judgment, we're going to be a shell of our former selves. A a, a tiny, faint glimmer, a, a, a tiny remnant is all that's going to be left after the judgment of God comes upon the people of God. So that's Paul's kind of big argument is that there will be some Gentiles included in the people of God who received the salvation of God, which that was scandalous, and there will be some Jews who are excluded from the people of God and the salvation of God, and that was scandalous. I mean, and so Paul's saying, I can, I'm showing you right here in the Old Testament where it says it, but it still was not the prevailing thought of the day. Um, the prevailing notion of the kind of Jewish religious aristocracy was that, God can't judge us. He'd be going back on his word, so he can never judge us. Gentiles will be judged. That's inevitable, but Jews will inherit eternal life. Um, There was a common phrase among uh, Jewish rabbis that said, all Israel has a portion in eternal life. Another one said, uh, if a Jew were to commit all manner of sins, he is indeed of the number of sinning Israelites, and he will indeed be punished according to his sins, but, He has, notwithstanding, a portion in eternal life. These are uh, writings and sayings of, of Jewish religious teachers. Justin Martyr was a historian, and he wrote this about the Jewish people. He said that they, collectively, the Jewish people, suppose that to them, universally, all who are of the seed of Abraham, no matter how sinful and disobedient to God they may be, they suppose. That to them universally, the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom shall be given. so ever thought in the, if, you were, if you were an Israelite in the first century, you thought all Jewish people go to heaven, all Gentiles do not, period full stop that's what and so here comes Paul saying, no it's all people who trust in Jesus receive God's salvation and all the people who reject Jesus as their savior are going to experience the judgment of God. And he points to Isaiah to say, here's an example of people from in, in the nation of Israel who are going to be, I mean, everyone, if you take all of the nation of Israel, that's the sand of the sea minus the remnant that will be saved, that delta, everyone else, is a bunch of ethnically Jewish people from the Old Testament that are not going to be saved. Paul's saying it's just right there. I'm not making it, not making it up. Oh, the, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Meaning, God's judgment is coming swiftly, immediately, and it's coming fully on the entire earth. It's not coming partially on the Gentile nations and that's it. It's coming fully on the entire earth. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. That's Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9. Big theme of Isaiah 1. Same thing, is just that, that we have sinned against God, we've forsaken his covenant, our country lies desolate, we've been besieged and defeated. We deserve the same exact judgment that Sodom and Gomorrah received, where God Incinerated them with fire from heaven and vaporized them. Isaiah says, We deserve that and we would receive that were it not for God's mercy and grace to leave us some remnant as offspring. So that's the argument so far. Main thesis, verses 22 to 24. God's people is not made up of Jews only, but but also from Gentiles. Part one, verses 25 to 26, there will be Gentiles who trust in Jesus and receive God's salvation, even though they are Gentiles. And then point two, verses 27 to 29, there will be Jewish people who reject Jesus and experience the judgment of God, even though they are Jewish. And so the last four verses, verses 30 and following, is just summing up and restating. What shall we say then? I am about to summarize. I'm going to be as clear and concise as I can be. Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. So the nature of what it means to be a Gentile is, you're outside of Israel. You're outside of the covenant. You're worshiping other gods. You're far from God. You're not a part of the people of God. You're not pursuing God. You're not pursuing the righteousness of God. And yet, Paul says there are plenty of these Gentiles who are not pursuing the righteousness of God who have somehow attained the righteousness of God. And the reason why, the, the way that they did that, the the, the how behind Uh, how they attained the righteousness of God is that they attained a righteousness that is by faith. So there's this perfect standard of righteousness that God requires. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Love God, worship God, obey God, ascribe glory to God, love your neighbor, care for them, meet their needs, prioritize them above yourselves. There is this standard of righteousness that God's Righteousness requires God to require. And then you've got this sea of Gentiles who are not pursuing that righteousness. Care nothing of that righteousness. Want nothing to do with that righteousness. And, God, and Paul says, somehow they have happened to attain that righteousness. And they did it by faith, meaning they heard the gospel. They they heard the gospel of Jesus. Someone came to them and told them that God is righteous and holy. He created you. You are accountable to him. He calls you to live a life of righteousness and holiness, but you have failed to do so. You've rebelled against him. You've rejected him. You've loved other gods, worshipped other things in place of him. But God has not left you on your own. Jesus has come to you. He has lived the perfect life that God was calling you to live. He died a sacrificial death in your place that you deserve. And he's been raised from the dead in victory over Satan and sin and death. He's ascended to heaven and he's calling all people everywhere to repent, turn from their sins, trust in him so that we can be saved. Jesus was punished so that uh, he was, was treated as if he was guilty of our sin so that we can be saved and treated as if we have lived the perfect life of Christ if we trust in him. Paul is saying there are Gentiles who have heard that message, responded to it, and believed it. And they're trusting in Christ, and their faith is in the person of Christ. And when they do that, they are credited with, they are, uh, the, the, with the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to them. So how did they stumble upon How did they attain to the righteousness smite having not pursued it? Through imputation. It was credited to them, it was imputed to them by God when they trusted in Jesus. They heard the gospel, believed it, and were saved through the imputed righteousness of Christ. But, verse 31, but Israel, who, who you know, uh, Unlike what the Gentiles were doing, Israel was pursuing a law that would lead to righteousness. They were trying to attain to the righteous. They, they didn't not care about it like the Gentiles didn't. They did care about it. They wanted to be righteous. They were, try, they were trying to observe the laws. They had the temple, the, the worship, the priesthood, the sacrifices. They had the law that was given to them at Sinai. They appeared, at least externally, to be trying to obey God and honor God. They were trying to be righteous enough to merit the favor of God, but those attempts were not successful. They did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but rather as if it were based on works. So Paul is saying the underlying sentiment, the underlying posture that that resides beneath The old covenant Israel's pursuit of the righteousness of God was one of tell us how you want us to live. Right? God has told us how he wants us to live. God has told us what he wants us to do. He's told us what he wants us not to do. He's told us where to live. He's told us what to eat. He's told us what to wear. He's told us uh, what sacrifices to offer and when and how often. God has told us everything that he wants us to do, and by golly, we're going to do it. We're going to do all of it. We're going to obey every single thing that God wants us to do. And when we do, God is going to be pleased with us. He's going to love us for it. He's going to be thrilled. God is going to appreciate who we are and what we have done and all of the great lengths that we have gone to please him. God is going to celebrate us. He's going to tell us how good of a job we've done. And everyone everywhere is going to see how great we are, how great of a nation we are, how great of a people we are because of our righteousness that we accomplished and we earned the merit and favor of God by embodying the perfect righteousness that God wanted us to embody. That was the the posture. And Paul is saying that kind of thinking, that you could be righteous enough to merit God's favor, and that as a result, you would be celebrated or glorified because of your righteousness and your religion, as opposed to God being celebrated because of his righteousness and his mercy, that idea of religious self-righteousness is the opposite of what God wants from you. No individual from within the nation of Israel or from outside of it, no individual has ever been righteous enough to merit the favor of God. And for anyone to presume that they were or that they might be is utterly offensive to God. It's offensive to God to sin against him and to besmirch his glory. That's bad enough. But it's infinitely worse to sin against God and then to chase that with Deluding yourself into thinking that you are righteous enough to merit God's favor and that God owes you salvation and that you are somehow good enough to have put God in your debt because of your religion and your morality and your performance. That's worse. It's bad to sin against God. It's worse to arrive at that position about you and your own life. And so Paul is saying that's how the Old Testament Israel saw themselves. That's how they understood their relationship with God to work and they were sorely mistaken. They pursued a law of righteousness but they failed to reach that law because they didn't pursue it by faith, which is how God intended for it to be pursued. Rather, they pursued it as if it was based on works, which is the opposite of what God ever intended. He says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And this is interesting because Paul is pulling from two places in Isaiah right here. He's pulling from Isaiah chapter 8 verse 14. And Isaiah chapter twenty-eight verse sixteen, and those two verses kind of say they say different things uh, about the the Messiah. They're, they're they're related, but they they kind of give us uh, two different perspectives into who the Messiah would be and what he's going to do and how people are to relate to him. So uh, Isaiah chapter twenty-eight, verse sixteen says. God has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of sure foundation, and whoever believes in him will not be in haste. So Isaiah 28 says that the Messiah, the Christ, is going to be this steady rock, this sure-footed rock, foundation, cornerstone that holds up the entire building, and anyone that comes and stands on that rock, puts their weight on that rock, rests on that rock, they will be held up safely and securely forever. Jesus can and will hold and keep and save every person that comes to him and trusts in him for salvation. He will not lose anyone ever. He is perfect, he is faithful, he is sufficient to save anyone who trusts in him. That's Isaiah 26 or that's Isaiah 28:16. Now, Isaiah 8:14 also talks about the Messiah, also refers to him as a rock, but a different Rock with a different purpose. It starts, the the lead into it says, you people of God, you should fear the Lord. In fact, you should dread the Lord. He will come as a stone of offense, as a rock of stumbling, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many will stumble on it and they will fall and be broken, and they will be snared, and they will be taken. Which is a radically different tone than Isaiah 28. They both are saying the Messiah will be a rock. They agree on that much. But Isaiah 28 says that rock will be this stable, weight-bearing Rock, this refuge of a rock that people can stand on and it will hold them up forever. And Isaiah Isaiah 8 says the Messiah will be a stone that people trip over and fall over. They'll be offended by it and they'll stumble over it. And when they trip and fall over the rock that is the Messiah, they'll be broken and smashed to pieces. Cornerstone, steady, sure, bear your weight, save you forever. Dangerous treacherous, trip over it, fall, smashed into pieces. And Paul, in Romans 9, takes both of those two verses, smushes them together and quotes them as if they were one verse to say Jesus is both of those things. The former this weight-bearing, safety-securing refuge of a rock. The former is how the Messiah operates for those who are humble and who turn from their sin and trust in him. To those people, he is a sure and steady cornerstone. But the latter is who the Messiah is, and it's how he operates for those who pridefully come into God's presence thinking that they are good enough and they are righteous enough to merit the favor of God in and of themselves. Those people will be crushed in judgment. And for his purposes here in chapter 9, Paul is saying that there are a great many Gentiles from all around the world who don't speak Hebrew. They've never heard of Abraham, they don't know anything about the nation of Israel, but they're going to hear the gospel, trust in Jesus, and they will rest safely and securely on him as the cornerstone of their salvation. There are a great many Gentiles who will respond that way and be treated that way. And there are a great many individuals within the nation of Israel, ethnically Jewish people, who may be able to trace their lineage back to Abraham, but they will reject Jesus, and to them he will be a stone that they stumble over and that they are broken in judgment. There will be Gentiles who trust in Jesus and receive the glorious salvation of God, even though they are Gentiles. And there will be Jewish people who reject Jesus and experience the judgment of God even though they are Jewish. Because salvation has nothing to do with ethnicity or race or nationality or people group. It has everything to do with faith and trusting in Jesus to save you. That's the argument, that's the line of logic that Paul is articulating in Romans 9. Now, the application that i want us to consider this morning i mean over and against just the just the, the 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 argument itself that we're we're kind of explaining and considering it's relevant for us to consider how the nation of israel responded to god in the old testament and how that response opened the door for the gospel to go out to the gentile world so that people like us could hear it all of that's entirely relevant but it's also relevant for us to look inward, consider our own hearts and consider whether they resemble the humble, repentant faith that enjoys the grace of God or the prideful, religious self-righteousness that, ex- that elicits the judgment of God. The Old Testament Israelite that Paul is describing here would, would look out of the Gentile world and think, I am glad I'm not like them. I thank God that I am not a sinner like them. I thank God that I have been chosen. I thank God that, you know, I fast, I pray, I tithe, I do everything right, and God loves me for it. People like them do not belong in here with people like me. Good people, righteous people, godly people who deserve God's favor. Keep them out because they're bad And keep me and people like me in that God loves. And if that heart posture sounds at all familiar, if you at times feel yourself having a tendency to look at others, judge them, judge the way they look, judge the way The decisions that they make judge the way that their life has taken shape and think, I'm better than them, they need to get their act together, they need to be more like me. Paul is saying, that's the very spirit that I'm saying offends God and invites the judgment of God. On the other hand, the Gentile that Paul's describing here would look at God recognize the holiness and righteousness of God, and he would be humbled to the dust. And he would say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't deserve your grace, I don't deserve your salvation, but I'm praying that you would save me anyway. And... Kind of been dancing around Jesus' parable in Luke 18, but Paul is saying, kind of like that, that it is that, that one that went home justified while the other did not. The Gentile who repents of his sin and trusts in Jesus goes home justified, even though he seemed like the candidate who is the least likely to receive God's grace. He went home justified. And the person who, as far as external appearances are concerned, the person who appears most likely to be a candidate for God's salvation, does not. I mean, for all intents and purposes, you could read this passage in Romans 9, replace the word Gentile with humble, repentant believer who trusts in Jesus. Again, regardless of Jew or Gentile, humble, repentant believer who trusts in Jesus, and you could replace the word Israel with religious, self-righteous person who's trying to earn God's favor through their good works. And so we have the opportunity today, right now, in our lives... To choose which of those two postures we are going to embody. The prideful, religious person who's utterly impressed with themselves and how righteous they are, and they judge everyone else around them for not being as good or moral as they are, as religious as they are, or we can take the posture of a humble, repentant believer who hears the gospel and trusts in Jesus and turns from their sin and trusts in Christ to, to save them. You can be a person who stands on the shore, steady, tested cornerstone that is Jesus Christ and he will hold you up and he will bear your weight and he will save you forever. Or you can be a person who stumbles over the stumbling stone, the rock of offense that is Jesus Christ and then be broken to pieces beneath the judgment of God. There is no one in the world, no one who has ever lived, no one who ever will live, there is no one who is righteous enough to merit God's favor, God's love, God's acceptance on their own. No one, no matter how good of a person they are, is righteous enough to merit God's favor. And there is no one in the world No one who has ever lived, no one who ever will live, who is bad enough, who has rebelled so much, that they are outside of the reach of God's grace. No one can sin so much, no one can make such a mess of their lives that God will not forgive them and welcome them and embrace them if they turn from their sin and trust in Jesus to save them. So let's be a people who respond to Jesus by trusting in him so that we might receive the grace and salvation that he freely offers. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have sovereignly decided to let the gospel message go out beyond the borders of the nation of Israel, out into the world to Gentiles like us. And Lord, we pray that we could respond rightly to the gospel message. We pray that we could turn away from our sin and turn away from our attempts to justify ourselves and and turn away from our lifelong self-salvation project. Instead, I pray that we could turn to you in faith, the precious cornerstone, the sure foundation. Lord, help us to trust you, help us to hold fast to you, and help us to to rest on you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.